There are always challenges in farming and ranching, and the ability to overcome those challenges makes a huge difference in the profit potential for the different ag sectors. We'll talk about managing some of those challenges from profitability and hog production to new paths for U.S. grain exports. Live from the first 11th hour of the day via Farm Journal broadcast, this is AgriTalk. This morning we begin with a conversation with Mike Steenhook from the Soy Transportation Coalition. Then it's Scott Brown from the University of Missouri and directly following the news, Karen Bonert from Farm Journal's Milk. I'm handsome newsman Davis Michelson. Now, here's the host of AgriTalk, Jeff Laurie. All right, Davis. Hey, great to have you back. Thanks, man. Where you're supposed to be. I hope everything mm-hmm. was enjoyable over an extended weekend. It was lovely. Absolutely Fantastic. lovely. Thanks. Fantastic. Yeah. Love to hear it. Welcome to AgriTalk. I'm Chip. Uh, that, of course, is Davis. We've got yep. some weather happening out there down in Texas. A lot of Oklahoma is seeing some rain right now up through eastern Kansas and into northwest Missouri. Are you seeing anything up there, buddy? Can confirm, amigo. Um, Sitting just below 70 degrees here, light rain falling. It's been raining since I got up this morning, and I think we got rain for the next couple of days. It feels like this rain is bringing in a bit of a shift for us. Okay, I mean, you set me up. I got to ask, is the Uh, driveway even wet then since it's been raining since you got up? (laughs) There are puddles. It's there's erosion. It's I'm going to have to happening. Yeah, I'm going to have to get to work after work. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Eastern South Dakota. There's some strong storms starting to develop in south central Minnesota. There are severe thunderstorm warnings in the central Wisconsin. And then um, the northern part of lower Michigan is also looking at some heavy, some heavy rains happening there. So would you call that the part, lower peninsula? Is that the I, lower I, peninsula? I maybe? think we do. I think we do. The LP? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, we talked uh, with, with Brett Waltz from BAM WX yesterday. Oh, yeah. And... He talked about the active week that we were going to be looking at across the upper Midwest and down through the Southern Plains. And it looks like mm. both are happening right now. And, and of course, that's expected to continue. So, all right, buddy. Um, uh, hopefully, you remember to throw some news together this morning. Otherwise, I got a little something. Freelance. Great. A little something. Uh, we'll start with the National Weather Service weather outlook. Um, get this. A significant early season winter storm will. It says will, Chip. Bring heavy snowfall later Tuesday through Wednesday across portions of the northwest, northern Rockies, and northern plains. Heavy rainfall in some areas of flash flooding will be possible for portions of the southern plains and Great Lakes, much above average temperatures for much of the central and eastern U.S. at midweek. Man, I tell you what, yeah, that's for now. But when we get into the extended outlook, Mm -hmm. uh, the 6 to 10 and the 8 to 14 that we had yesterday, high odds, high odds of below normal temperatures coming into an area next to you here oh. in the middle of the country uh-huh. uh, in in um, you know in just in less than a week so mm. here it comes look out you gotta love sweater weather chip yeah uh let's look at some crop progress report highlights here from usda again Perfect. i said it last week i don't know how many more of these we're going to do but corn 59 percent harvested that's ahead of average Soybeans, 76% harvested, ahead of average. Cotton, 90% balls opening, 91% average. 41% harvested, 39% on average, and 29% is good to excellent. That's down one point from last week. Winter wheat, 77% planted. That's one point behind average. 53% emerged in line with the five-year average emergence pace, Chip. Yeah, we're going to have to continue to watch what's going on with with, uh, cotton harvest. But you're right, once you push past... That 50% mark on corn and soybean harvest. Yep. And on corn, good grief, look at it. I, we're bumping up against 60%. Went from 54% uh, uh, on average. But I we were just under 50% in the previous report, Davis. So mm-hmm. making mm-hmm. quick work of this year's corn harvest. Absolutely. And I've got private exporters reporting sales this morning of 117,200 metric tons of corn. That's for delivery to Mexico during the 23-24 marketing year. Building the book. Guarded optimism is growing 
that House Republicans will unite behind the chosen nominee after weeks of public disagreements. Lawmakers held a meeting to hear proposals from candidates who outlined their strategies for unifying the party and advancing legislative priorities. A GOP vote to select the party's nominee is scheduled, with a full House floor vote expected in the coming days. Chip, currently eight potential candidates are reportedly vying for the position. Yeah. This is not getting less complicated, is it? No. <laughs> no. Well, <laughs> no. No, it's not. I think we're down to seven. So oh, it's it, seven now. And I think it's it's happened here in just the last few minutes. Seriously. Fair enough. Okay. So it... I don't know if that makes it less complicated or more complicated. What I want to know is where is the candidate from the eight that blew this all up? Mm. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I don't see it. Yeah. In other news, Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack emphasized the importance of the CCC and USDA's market development and aid programs, saying these funds will help strengthen the presence of U.S. ag in existing and new markets, ensuring that high-quality American agriculture and food products reach those in need worldwide. The CCC comes up in conversation again, Chip. Yeah, absolutely, and this is a major investment, $2.3 billion mm-hmm. to maintain and develop markets overseas. Uh, we're we're trying to get Secretary Vilsack on uh, to talk about that. Well, before we get to Karen, Hamas has freed two elderly women as part of ongoing efforts to secure the release of over 200 individuals held yeah. captive since the October 7 attack, Chip. All right. Thank you very much, Davis. Let's bring in Karen Bonert, editor of Farm Journal's Milk. Good morning, Karen. Good morning, Chip. Okay. What did you learn from the latest USDA milk production report? Well, Chip, it was the third consecutive month for a decline in milk production at 2% less milk being produced year over year. But the big takeaway from my perspective was the drop in cow numbers with 36,000 less head. Um, And really, the Southwest chip is where we saw that biggest decline. California led the way with 9,000 fewer head, but that resulted in 60 million pounds less. New Mexico saw uh, 19,000 fewer head. Um, And our friend Phil Florida over at Everag told me, if things don't improve in the Southwest chip, it'll be interesting to see from a dairy products manufacturing perspective what happens, you know, because Mm -hmm. they obviously rely on milk. And if they have to truck it in from out of state, that will be a different scenario. But on the on the flip side, Michigan added 11,000 cows. New York increased 5,000. But big winner, which is not surprising, was South Dakota, yeah. which produced 21 million more pounds with 12,000 cows. Um, but I should note, you know, this is kind of an interesting thing with we've talked about it before with beef on dairy with coal cow prices. Mm-hmm. I'm also tracking dairy heifer inventories. Uh, are very tight right now and we'll continue to watch that because i'm seeing reports and hearing from producers that milk cow and springer price is increasing yeah you know it's the whole dynamic of the 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 beef crosses on the dairy and producing the females very specifically for those replacement heifers there's no cushion in that supply is what what the result is going to be isn't it there is no cushion i mean it costs to feed those so you don't want to have much extra yeah 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 man this is fascinating stuff i can't wait for milk business conference and and learn more about all of this learn more about that at www.dairyherd.com thanks karen thanks chip you bet karen boner editor farm journals milk we're going to have a conversation with mike steenhook next everyone. I'm Jennifer Glover, a dairy farmer from Georgia. We'll be talking to registered dietitians Katie Brown, Senior Vice President at the National Dairy Council, about what the dietary guidelines are and how they were formed. Katie, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? I'm Katie Brown. I'm Senior Vice President of Scientific Affairs and Nutrition Affairs at National Dairy Council. I manage strategic partner engagement and thought leader outreach with the scientific and health professional communities, engaging them about the benefits of dairy consumption at every age and stage of life. What are the dietary guidelines for Americans and why are they so important for society? 
They're designed to promote health and prevent disease. So it's the nation's eating advice, and it's based on science. It matches up very nicely with National Dairy Council and the dairy community's commitment to public health as well. All of us who work for dairy farmers are proud of dairy's wellness legacy and and our reputation. I think it's important for the dairy farmers to know their checkoff investment in research to discover the nutritional and wellness benefits of dairy has added such significant value to public health in our country and around the world. And because of that evidence, dairy's been included in every edition of the U.S. Dietary Guidelines for the past 40 years and has been represented as a unique and distinct food group. For the first time, recommendations were added regarding dairy for ages birth to 23 months. Can you tell us about this and how the recommendations came to be? For the first time ever, recommendations for pregnancy and the earliest years of life, birth to two years old, was included. This was great news for dairy as yogurt and cheese are now recommended options for infants starting as early as six months of age. The benefits of dairy are vast and robust, and your checkoff team is working hard every day to amplify those, inspire people to choose dairy, and continue to discover more and more of those benefits. Learn more at usdairy.com. Hey guys, it's me, Isabella Gomez, filling in for Smokey Bear because he's got more to say than just... Only you can prevent wildfires. Like, if you're outside enjoying a barbecue, don't let a hamburger distract you from fire safety. Make sure you aren't dumping your hot coals or ashes onto the ground because that could start a wildfire. So take wildfire prevention seriously and let's save the world one day at a time. Juntos con Smokey Bear, podemos hacerlo. Go to SmokeyBear.com to learn more about wildfire prevention. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Ag Day host Clinton Griffiths, and I invite you to join me each morning as we cover the nation's food system, from fields of green to orchards of orange and livestock everywhere in between. America runs on agriculture, and here at Ag Day, agriculture is what we do best. Listen as our analysts track the markets, learn about innovations in technology and sustainability, and live the country lifestyle through the eyes of rural America. Join me, Clayton Griffiths, for Ag Day, the country experience. AgriTalk is brought to you by Phospholutions, which is excited to launch Rhizozorb, the first fertilizer technology proven across hundreds of field trials to improve grower ROI by 20% and maintain or increase yield with less applied phosphate per acre. Welcome back to AgriTalk. I'm Chip. Glad that you are with us on this Tuesday morning. Um, Last week was a lot of fun, and and, uh, Big Apple Joe and I, had an opportunity to go out west to the Port of Grays Harbor and take a look at the operations there and the plans for expansion to adjust what that harbor can do to match up with some of the changing dynamics of what is happening in the soy industry. In other words, AGP is basically going to double their ability to load meal, soybean meal, from the Port of Grays Harbor and, uh, boy, that is something that, that obviously is needed. Well, we're dealing with a lot of other issues when it comes to shipping product uh, around out of the U.S. And, and around the world. And I want to talk about some of those issues right now with Mike Steenhook. Mike is the executive director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. Mike, it's great to talk with you again. How are you, buddy? I am doing fine, Chip. It's good to be with you. Good, good, good. Now, I want to start with the strike, okay? Uh, because I think that's going to help us set the stage for some of the other part of the conversation that we're doing here. What is going on? It looks like we've got a strike happening at 13 different port locations on the St. Lawrence Seaway. Tell me about it. Yeah, so the the, the Great Lakes-St. Lawrence Seaway system uh, obviously connects the Atlantic Ocean through the St. Lawrence River and then into the Great Lakes system. Well, there's mm-hmm. a number of locks and locks that are located uh, throughout that system, and most of them are on the Canadian side of the international border. And that, obviously, the the purpose of those locks is to allow, you have different elevation levels uh, from one Great Lake to the next, and so that allows that, those locks provide that kind of stair step up or down to allow ships to transit the whole system. Well, there's the the labor union um, on the Canadian labor union that services those locks on the Canadian side. And there's actually 13 of these locks 
Um, that union has actually decided to go on strike. That started at 12.01 a.m. on October 22nd. And the dispute is over wages. Um, yep. And the the other negotiating party is what's called the St. Lawrence Seaway Management Corporation. And that's the entity appointed by the Canadian federal government to manage the Canadian assets uh, of the St. Lawrence Seaway system. And so the, the result of this impasse is these workers are not going to service these locks. Now, if, if you endeavor to try to bring imports in via the Atlantic Ocean into the St. Lawrence Seaway Great Lakes system yep. or have exports going out to the Atlantic Ocean, you have to go through these locks. Yep. And so what it essentially does is it, it closes that system down for any kind of international imports or exports. Yep. And obviously, that's a concern for a variety of industries, including agriculture. Right, right. Now, uh, normally, I would look at this and say, you know what, Mike, that's something that I'm going to watch, but it's not that big of a deal. But when we look at the shipping problems that we and issues that we are having on the Mississippi River because of the low water levels, in the back of my mind, I'm playing out the scenario where we've got to use every option available, and the St. Lawrence Seaway is one of those options to push some U.S. soybeans out, especially with Europe turning more in the last couple of years to the U.S. for some supplies, that Rotterdam market in particular. Uh, so now I look at the St. Lawrence Seaway and I think, well, this is just another hurdle to overcome for, for moving beans out of the U.S. Am I making too big of a deal about it? No, it's a real concern. You know, so, you know, it's not, you know, for soybeans going on to the international marketplace, you've got the preeminence of the Mississippi Gulf, and then mm -hmm. you have number two is the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. But then you've got a, a collection of other launching points, and the Great Lakes is one of those. So it's not it's it's only about one percent of U.S. soybean exports leave from it. But and so the temptation to say is to say, well, no big deal. Well, it is a it is a concern to us because, as you mentioned. At this very point, because of some of these other supply chain challenges and low water on the Mississippi River is the preeminent one, uh -huh. there's a lot of exporters who are asking the question, what's my option B? What's my yeah. option C? And so at this very moment, and, and, some of, and that inquiry is leading some to consider the Great Lakes and St. Lawrence Seaway system. Not everyone, some, some areas it, it, it's not a viable option for them, but some other areas it, it is. And so at this time, where people are inquiring about the St. Lawrence Seaway Great Lakes system is at the very time where they're, they've decided to go on strike and send a message, we're not reliable. So it's a, it's a very yeah. unfortunate message that they're sending. And so it really needs to be, these negotiations need to be concluded as soon as possible if they're concerned about their long-term viability. Yeah. Okay, before we get to the potential of the St. Lawrence Seaway, Tell me more about this situation on the river, Mike. I, uh, how how uh, is it impacting total volumes down the river, getting, moving beans from the Midwest to the Gulf? Yeah, you know, it's kind of like a, a six-lane freeway is now a, a two- or three-lane freeway. You know, traffic still is occurring, but it's not at the normal normally is and so you know we are seeing barge transportation still occur we're still seeing exports out of the mississippi gulf but you know these barge companies are having to load 25 percent 30 percent less per barge as they normally would and then number two is that they're not able to put as many barges together to form one single unit and so the economics of barge transportation is profoundly different th than it normally is now hopefully with the the rain that you know, we've recently experienced, but we'll experience over these next seven days, it will serve to stabilize the situation so it's not getting worse, but hopefully increase it a little bit. But the bottom line is we're going to need a lot of persistent rain over a sustained period of time to really turn the tide on this. Yeah, yeah, and and hopefully, I mean, there's there's a lot of reasons that we would like to see some recharging rains across the Midwest, and the Mississippi is one of them, but boy, uh, bringing a little confidence back into production for 2024 is another one, uh, a big reason that we want to get those reins in here. Okay, Highway H2O. It was a conference that was in Toronto, and you presented at it. it 
talking about the the St. Lawrence Seaway and the potential there, it, you you mentioned it earlier. It handles about one percent of ag exports from the U.S. Could it be more going forward? We we think so, and you know there's. You know, recently, you know, the company DeLong opened uh, an export terminal at the port of Milwaukee, and we're, Mm -hmm. you know, certainly partnering with them to encourage that. There's facilities out of Toledo, Ohio, that export a considerable amount. Um, You know, Oswego, New York. There's a number of these facilities that, you know, they've experienced some some nice additional volume out of that facility. Maritime transportation is still the most environmentally sustainable. That's something our customers like in Europe are increasingly demanding. So there's a lot of reasons why we can increase that volume. And, and for me, you know, I don't expect that it will ever rival the Mississippi Gulf or the Pacific Northwest, but right. if you can double it, um, that's, that's all of a sudden you're increasing the diversity, diversity of your supply chain for area of the country that increases the resiliency of your industry and you're better positioned for success. So any kind of opportunity to look at these various launching points, the Atlantic coast, the Great Lakes, rail yep. into Mexico, P&W, Mississippi Gulf, et cetera, Texas Gulf. I think there, it's incumbent upon folks like me to ask the question, how can we remove barriers for that increasing? How can we make that more competitive? The Great Lakes St. Lawrence Seaway is a part of that. So we look forward to continuing to pursue that. Obviously, we need the strike to conclude as soon as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is it a year round uh, path that beans can take out of the country? And that, that's one of the concerns and one of the challenges of the Great Lakes St. Lawrence Seaway is that usually it's closed December to March. Um, there's ice accumulation in certain parts of it. They have to do maintenance of, of some of the locks. So that's admittedly one of the concerns of the system. And that's going to keep it a lid on how robust it can ultimately be. But again, yeah. Can, can you increase it? Can you make it more accessible? We think so. And that's something we look forward to continuing to pursue. What, what about rail service into the, that port there at Milwaukee and some of the other ports on the, on the lakes? Yeah, I mean, a lot of that gets fed in by truck, but there's obviously some rail okay. service uh, as well. And so, um, you know, you look at some of these states that are key soybean producing states like Illinois and Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, yeah. et cetera, Indiana you know, they're, they're right up against the Great Lakes system. And so yep. for a lot of those farmers, you know, it makes sense that, you know, maybe it wouldn't be their option A, but if you can make it a more viable option B, that's healthy for the industry. Absolutely. And Louis Dreyfus uh, just announced that they're putting that new crush facility over there, Sandusky, Ohio. Uh, a lot of that meal, I realize, is going to go to the southeast U.S., but... If there's an opportunity to export for them out of the Great Lakes, I'm sure that they would take it. Mike, we'll see you in a couple of weeks down at the Port of South Louisiana, all right? Hey, looking forward to it, Chip. Excellent. We've got Scott Brown up next. No doubt you've heard of MetLife, but did you know that MetLife Investment Management has over 100 years of ag lending experience? The MetLife Investment Management team maintains close relationships with its borrowers and can structure a customized loan with flexible terms to meet your financial needs. Looking to expand, refinance, or recapitalize? Consider MetLife Investment Management. Learn more at metlife.com forward slash ag. Is your dry fertilizer pulling its weight? With Titan XC, your dry fertilizer will work harder than ever before. Ask for Titan XC on your dry fertilizer this fall to maximize nutrient efficiency so you can grow farther with greater yield and return on investment. Available exclusively from Nutrient Ag Solutions. Contact your local Nutrient Ag Solutions crop consultant for more information. Always read and follow label directions. Time for Markets Now with the experts from ProFarmer. Joining us now, Pro Farmer Editor Brian Grady Beach. Some mixed trade, uh, but the lower path is being opened up by wheat. What's going on there? 
Well, uh, a lot of it's outside markets, Chip. Uh, the dollar index is about 700 points higher today. So, and, okay. and uh, you know, wheat's pulling back uh, from some recent gains. And, and uh, so uh, probably not too surprising. Uh, crude oil market's under heavy pressure as well. And, and so uh, those outside markets are really leaning negative here at, at mid-morning and, and having an influence not only on the wheat market, uh, but also on corn, uh, it's trading about a nickel lower. And we did have a daily corn sale to Mexico this morning, but uh, uh, not having a positive impact there being overshadowed by that uh, spillover from wheat and the outside yeah. markets. Yeah, okay. Uh, a little bit of strength in soybeans led by the gains in soybean meal? Yeah, uh, so meal continues to be a, a pretty good indicator of, of what the price action is going to yeah. be in, in soybeans here. And, and uh, so we're seeing that play out at, at mid-morning, uh, about a nickel higher in soybeans and, and a little bit more than a dollar higher in, in most of the soy meal contracts. All right. Well, thank goodness we're not seeing any follow-through selling in the cattle complex from yesterday's sharp declines. Yeah, well, yesterday was uh, severely overdone to the downside. You know, it almost turned into a perfect storm. We had the, the bearish cattle on feed report um, numbers and, and then uh, technical selling and, and the long liquidation and everything just added up and it turned into a limit down uh, performance in, in uh, yeah. a couple of the contracts. So we have expanded limits today, but uh, a good, strong recovery, We're trying to recoup uh, some of what we lost yesterday. Yep. And then on the hog side of things, December contracts narrowing up the discount with the cash and the rest of the contracts are lower. Pro Farmer Editor Brian Grady on Markets Now. I'm Tyne Morgan, host of U.S. Farm Report, the only weekend television show that features some of agriculture's biggest names. From custom commentary from John Phipps to the stories of antique iron with Machinery Pete to a list of more than 30 marketing analysts, our weekly program focuses on the topics that matter most to you. We invite you to join us each weekend for U.S. Farm Report, timely, trusted tradition. Hey, what's up, y'all? I'm Kelly Clarkson, and as the daughter of a school teacher, I know just how important education is. No matter how old you are or your situation, continuing to learn will enrich your life and help remove barriers you didn't even know were there. So much opportunity, y'all. Whether it's a foreign language, history, or a different way to look at things, take some time each day to learn something new. This message is courtesy of the United States Air Force. Opinions expressed on AgriTalk do not necessarily reflect the views of Farm Journal Broadcasting, affiliate stations, or sponsors. Our name says it all. AgriTalk. What more do you need to know? Welcome back to AgriTalk. Hey, Davis, I should have mentioned yeah. should uh, before I wrapped up with Brian Grady that Brian is going to be on the show this afternoon. Oh, is that He's right? He's our guest analyst. Yes. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yes. So. We'll make plans uh, make plans for 206 Central this afternoon to come back for a conversation between me, Davis, and Proformer Editor Brian Grady. Okay. Each month, the University of Missouri and Farm Journal work together on a project that is called the Ag Economist Monthly Monitor. And... It's a, it's a survey of ag economists. It's not of producers. And that's why I, this is a, it's a really interesting take on what is going on out there in the minds of, of some of the economists that are, are tracking and following um, the ag economy. And to talk about it with us is Dr. Scott Brown. Uh, Dr. Brown, of course, has been on the show several times. He is the interim director of the Rural and Farm Finance Policy Analysis Center there at the University of Missouri, and he's helping out on this monthly monitor. Scott, it's good to talk with you again. How are you? I'm doing good, Chip. How about those Mizzou Tigers? How about them, huh? I, you know, I, I know this is going to be a huge surprise to you, but I couldn't tell you what you're talking about. <laughs> I couldn't resist at least. Uh, it's not very often I can I, I can say that, so uh, it's been a good start here. Yeah, good start, good start. When do the tough team show up? Uh, I think we get a face Georgia here coming up, so that'll be a test for us. There you go, there you go. No, it's it's all good fun. Hey, you know, I could even say, how about those Cyclones? I, we we weren't expected to win a Big Twelve game this year. 
and we've already got three of them on the left side of the column. That's pretty cool. You'll take it when you can get it, right? Darn right. Darn right. That is exactly right, sir. Okay, tell me, we, we've got the October results are in. They've not been released, but you've got the October results in. What's the main takeaway from what you've seen so far, Scott? Yeah, when I think we look at the overall situation, uh, we really didn't see a lot of movement in the in what folks are telling us about the overall situation. Um, if, if you look at what people are saying about farm income for 2024, on average, mm-hmm. we increased about a billion dollars. But we still, relative to 2023, are talking about farm income that would be about 10 billion lower uh, than what we w- are going to see this year. So uh, I, I guess just more downside risk is the way I might characterize what we're saying about the overall economy. Okay. What is driving that? Is it concern over commodity prices? I, I think that's the big one. Uh, you know, okay. lower commodity prices. We, we, we could talk hogs. We could talk dairy. Uh, mm-hmm. But even some of the other commodities, as you look ahead, people are suggesting lower prices out there, especially if we talk about reasonable crops that we might harvest next fall. I, I think those are the things that that make people more concerned. And on top of that, higher interest rates, uh, other costs that are higher. I, I think this cost price squeeze continues to be top of mind for a lot of our respondents. Okay. You know, following the September data uh, survey, there was uh, a lot of conversation about how tough conditions are in the hog industry. Scott, I know that you focus on the protein markets and in this hog industry, the hog market, it, the outlook hasn't changed much. If anything, it's deteriorated since that September uh, survey. So, Chip, I don't like what uh, we're, we're saying about uh, hog prices as we go into 2024. You know, continued uh, narrowing of, of 24 prices relative to 23 just tells me there's more tough times ahead, according to uh, the Economist survey. Now, a lot of volatility in those uh, mm-hmm. price estimates when you look at some of the individual results. So it just tells me how volatile these markets could, could likely be. Maybe for some hog producers, lower feed costs may be the silver lining as we look ahead. Okay. Yeah, lower feed costs. What about the? What are the expectations on corn prices? How have they changed from September to October in the in the Economist survey? Yeah, so we're actually talking about uh, corn prices that are uh, starting to recover a little bit from what were the, the lows. So we would have set a, a 24, 25 corn price. Uh, about 4.45 uh, was the average from September. Uh, now we're suggesting uh, 4.65. So we gained about 20 cents. Uh, still lower than what we're going to say this year's crop's going to average at about uh, 4.85. Yeah. You know, talk about a market that has been caught in a sideways trade. Scott, good Lord. Last week we had one close above five bucks and that's all we could muster it. it and, and here we are back trading in the middle of that sideways trading range. It just tough to break it out. What's holding us in here? Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I think you're looking at South American crops. Uh, mm-hmm. you're, you're looking at demand that isn't all that strong. Uh, all those things. There's just not much momentum one direction or the other and stocks that are building um, relative to what we would have seen 12 months ago. Uh, I think all those things have kept us moving a lot sideways. That's market looking for some direction. Okay. All right. Let's go to the economist expectations on soybean prices. What are, what, what did the survey reveal? Yeah. So if you look back at uh, what we were saying well, so for the crop we just harvested back in September, the average was 1298. Uh, we declined to 1273 uh, with the October numbers. When you look ahead to next year's crop, uh, we're saying 12 uh, 1230 roughly uh, for a season average price for 2425. Uh, yeah. Just reminds me to keep saying all, you know, you look at the survey and this has been very, very consistent. As you look ahead, 
down the road 12 months, all these prices coming in lower uh, than the yeah. current marketing year. Yeah. Yeah. Consistent from the first survey that, that, uh, uh, that we did on, on the monthly monitor, isn't it? I, next year's bean price is expected to be below this year's. And we, we talk about that and I think it's just kind of assumed that that's how it's going to end up. But at the same time, Scott, we talk about the need for more bean acres in 2024 than what we had in 2023. How does that? How does how does that mesh? It, it tells us that we're dancing on top of the head of a pin in in many cases, in my mind. And and so good a a good yield, um, and I think the projections that we see are are probably going to hold true. Short yield or stronger than expected demand could push us the other direction pretty quickly. That, that to me, is the hardest part of answering these questions going forward. It's, it's gotten harder to do this kind of market outlook. Gone are the days where it, it seems like if I knew supplies, I, would knew, I, I knew about where prices yeah. were going to be for these yeah. commodities. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> you got that right. I mean, uh, the demand has always been a factor in the, in, in the uh in the outlook for these markets, there's no question. But now when you got to factor in things like war in the Middle East, war in Ukraine, geopolitical instability with China, there's so much outside influence, Scott, that we've got to sort through. It just becomes difficult. Absolutely. Those events have been just moving markets uh, immensely. And, and I'll say on top of that, Chip, you know, I yeah. think when you look at the structure of, of ag, especially at the farm gate, we're becoming more inelastic. So small changes in supplies give us big changes in prices because we don't, you know, I'll, I'll take the hog side here for a minute. Okay. We have a hard time pushing hog supplies lower. So when you think about corn used for, for hogs, it doesn't change very much even if those corn prices change because they got to keep producing hogs in those facilities. So I, I think the yeah. combination of big events and structure that's different today certainly is, is increasing volatility for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Cattle prices. Talk to me about that. We had the big back off yesterday, huge drop yesterday in reaction to that negative cattle on feed report that came on Friday. First, a couple of things. What's the outlook according to the survey? And was that that big jump in placements, was that one-off or is that the start of a new trend? Um, well, so when you look at the survey, uh, 2024 cattle prices, uh, about $187 is, is what uh, the economist said in October. Uh, that was done prior to the Catalan feed report. Yeah. Um, I, however, I don't, and, and if you look at that range, all right, so it's a very wide range setting out there, 178 to 195 is the range from top to bottom of those that filled out the survey, if that gives you some indication of, of the uncertainty that sets out there. Yeah. But uh, I, I think when you look at the Catalan feed report, so so I'll take the silver lining for a minute, Chip, despite yesterday okay. was, was horrible. Uh, when you look at placements, uh, for September in 2022, they were relatively flat relative to the previous month. So seasonally, we always tend to go higher in September placements. I think the drought last year affected kind of the normal placement rate. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so it, it, it was large. I'm not going to suggest otherwise, but the 106.1 that we saw uh, certainly was affected by uh, the, the base of of September 2022 placements. Yeah. I, I think when you look at higher feeder cattle prices, the incentive to bring cattle in from Mexico, in from Canada, is yeah. gonna continue to be there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And at some point I wanna get you on and talk about the feeder cattle market, Scott, because we gotta talk about that, you know, the, the beef cross calves coming out of the dairy industry as well. All right, Scott, thanks buddy. That is Dr. Scott Brown from the University of Missouri talking about the monthly monitor index. <coughs> Hello? Man, where are you? I thought you were coming. I can't. I'm in bed with the flu. <coughs> the flu? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Grandma's about to crowd, sir. 
Man, I'll call you back. Don't get stuck at home with the flu. A flu shot is safe, effective, and you can get it at the same time as your COVID-19 vaccine. A flu shot is the best way to prevent the flu and its potentially serious complications. Don't get flu FOMO. Learn more at GetMyFluShot.org. Brought to you by the AMA, CDC, and the Ad Council. This is Andrew McRae, host of the American Countryside. I'm also a farmer and rancher from Northwest Missouri, and I hope you'll join me each week for Farming the Countryside as we take a look at the top issues impacting agriculture as told by the people farming and working in their industry. We'll talk about markets and trade, share some of the latest tips and trends from grain and livestock producers, and take a look at trends impacting rural America. Join me for Farming the Countryside on many local radio stations or on your favorite podcast platform, or just go to farmingthecountryside.com. Hi, I'm Ag Day host Clinton Griffiths, and I invite you to join me each morning as we cover the nation's food system, from fields of green to orchards of orange and livestock everywhere in between. America runs on agriculture, and here at Ag Day, agriculture is what we do best. Listen as our analysts track the markets, learn about innovations in technology and sustainability, and live the country lifestyle through the eyes of rural America. Join me, Clinton Griffiths, for Ag Day, the country experience. The Scoop Podcast is where we talk about tight supply chains, emerging agronomic challenges, technology tools delivering ROI. I'm Margie Echelkamp, editor of The Scoop and host of The Scoop Podcast. Join me as I interview leaders from across the ag retail sector. Farmers are working hard for every bushel and their trusted advisors are by their side. Find The Scoop Podcast wherever you find podcasts so you are up to date on everything ag retail. In farming, you don't do anything halfway because putting in half the effort yields only half the reward. Protivate Nutritional Seed Enhancer from Coke Agronomic Services is a dual-purpose solution that gives young crops critical nutrients for early uniform emergence, plus seed circulation and flowability. And with multiple formulations, you'll find the right fit. Plant smarter with Protivate. To get started, contact your Coke Agronomic Services representative or local ag retailer or visit getgreatergrowth.com. At Simplot Grower Solutions, success starts with seed. For each field condition, climate, and agronomic management style, your local Simplot Grower Solutions crop advisor can help you select and provide the seed that enables you to plant a strong foundation for the growing season. Our team of seed experts are committed to your success and will offer the support you need to optimize your yield potential. Contact your local crop advisor now for your best seed opportunity or visit SimplotGrowerSolutions.com for more information. We are joined by Taylor Perucker. He is the crop nutrition lead at the Mosaic Company. Taylor, there are essential elements for plant growth. Sulfur is one of these, but there are two different forms of sulfur. Tell me about these two forms. Yeah, so sulfur is one of the 17 major essential nutrients in plants. It's actually uh, the fourth most needed behind nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Uh, there are two forms primarily in agriculture that we use. We use uh, sulfate sulfur, which is a form that's readily available that plants can take up. We also use elemental sulfur, which is not readily available. It takes time to oxidize, but what it does is over the course of the growing season is that it provides sulfur mid to late season uh, during reproductive growth stages. Okay, gotcha. So how does the plant take up sulfur? Sulfur is primarily taken up by mass flow, so it's taken up with water by the plant through the roots. A very small amount could be taken up by sulfur dioxide gas that's absorbed through the leaves, but the majority is through the roots. Okay, so why is this process important to, to keep it in mind when you're making your fertilizer decisions? Well, crops need sulfur throughout the entire growing season. Crops take up sulfur at a pretty steady pace, about, for example, in corn, about 50% in the first half of the growing season, about 50% in the second half of the growing season. So having multiple forms of sulfur that provides availability is really critical to achieve high yields. Microessentials is fertilizer by the Mosaic Company that has both sulfate and elemental sulfur forms in it to provide season-long availability. Very cool. So where can listeners go to learn more? Uh, Growers can speak with their local retailers to learn more about our performance products, or they can visit our website at www.cropnutrition.com. Excellent, Taylor. Thank you. That is Taylor Perucker. He is the Crop Nutrition Lead at the Mosaic Company. If the world is your oyster, we've got pearls of wisdom on Agritalk. 
Welcome back to Agri Talk. I'm Chip. Glad that you're with us on this Tuesday morning. Really interesting conversation there with Scott Brown as far as what the price outlook is and so on. Mm-hmm. One thing that we did not talk about, Davis, yes, is the economists' expectations on corn and soybean and even cotton yields for the report going forward. So mm-hmm. uh, uh, with that in mind, let's first make time for this yields in the fields. Yields in the Fields on AgriTalk is brought to you by MicroEssentials, the super granule that packs balanced nutrition into a single granule for uniform nutrient distribution and season-long sulfur availability. Supercharge your yields with the mighty micro from Mosaic. Chip, we've been dialed in uh, on this round of yields in the fields on the corn belt. When you think corn, you think corn belt. Sure. I'm going to move us outside of the, okay. the traditional corn belt here this is interesting stick with me stick with me i'm in richland county montana oh in the northeastern portion of the state where a farmer says this my corn yields are fantastic we really needed a good corn crop as we lost sugar beets in our valley because our beet factory closed he needed those corn yields dude He's, he's lost demand for one crop now switching over to to another crop, yep. and that crop is king corn, brother. Yeah, yeah. Um, the what what has been done with the short season hybrids mm-hmm. on corn, Davis, is nothing short of spectacular. Um, some of the the really short season corn uh, numbers that are being grow, growing up in Montana and North Dakota. I, I'm not going to say that they will yield consistently with the longer season varieties that we've got in the middle in the in well in the middle of the corn belt, okay. Mm-hmm. But given the right weather and the right weather conditions, they'll jump up there with, with those long season varieties from time to time. Mm. And this year, in areas of North Dakota, and evidently. In northeast Montana, conditions have been just right. Uh, I, I, I'm hearing some yield monitor reports where they're seeing 300 plus for short periods in a field, but mm-hmm. 300 plus in some of those North Dakota and, and who knows, maybe even Montana cornfields yeah. up there. So the short season stuff, pretty spectacular. Indeed. Very, Indeed. very spectacular. Well, um, I'm glad, glad to hear they're doing all right there. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, okay, so if we, if, if Scott said it, it used to be that if we would figure out what's happening on the supply side of the market, mm. all of a sudden it would become much, much easier to figure out what the price outlook is for corn, soybeans, cotton, wheat going forward. Um, now it is. It's still important to know the supply side of the market, obviously, but there are so many other factors that have to be considered mm-hmm. in that price outlook now, and you just have to accept the fact that if you're in the business of going out and talking about price outlook for the row crops in particular, you're going out there with the idea that you're going to you have to accept the fact you could be wrong, and you have to put together the list of reasons why you could be wrong, so that uh, so that guys that are are building risk management plans can can for themselves say, well, okay, what are the odds that war in the Middle East is really going to have a major impact on crude oil prices, and and is that crude oil price is it going to have an impact on what what uh, you know, price of corn, price of soybean oil, price of soybeans going forward. Um, And there's just so much to be considered, okay? But Mm -hmm. for October, the survey of analysts, of of economists, have the the national average corn yield at 173 bushels per acre, okay? Okay. Uh, That is right where USDA was in the... October crop production report. Now, when we look at soybeans, the guess is 49.6, which 
is right where USDA is. Um, now, the survey results, yeah, 49.6. There it is. So they're not expecting any change in this number going forward. Uh, it's, uh, I don't know. It. I still like to think that they're, they're going to have to trim a little bit off that national average corn yield. I still like the 172 that Pro Farmer estimated at the end of August following the the, uh, the Midwest crop tour. Uh, then on the soybeans, I'm still I'm I'm still concerned because mm-hmm. it was Davis, mm-hmm. and, and the thing is, the thing is, I've talked to people that were in areas that got very little if any rain during during uh, August and through the first half of September, mm. and they still got good bean yields. Okay, they I, I talk to them about it and they just shake their head and say, I have no idea how it happened. I, I just I just don't know how it happened. So I know that those yields are out there. And even knowing that those yields are out there, I'm still very concerned that this national average bean yield is going to continue to fall mm. uh, from the October estimate, 49.6 to the November crop production report, which. Don't forget, government shutdown isn't scheduled until November 15th or 17th. So we'll get that crop production report first. Mm-hmm. But And even beyond that, in, into the January annual production summary, I think this is still a discovering process mm. on soybean yields. So I think there's some work to do there, man. It, uh, it just was not the kind of finish on a bean crop that anybody wanted or anticipated and some of these corn yields yeah i get it they're outstanding but uh a 172 for a national average corn yield after the growing season that we had i think still makes a whole lot of sense out there all right thank you so much for listening this morning come back this afternoon brian grady editor pro farmer and then tomorrow we're going to talk about some fall season crop production issues with iowa state field agronomist Angie Reichens, and of course, we'll have that Farmer Forum tomorrow here on AgriTalk. From innovation to action, BASF is collaborating with farmers in the Midwest and South to take a tougher stance on pigweed. The key to eradication mindset is based on three essential building blocks. Through the Pigweed Eradication Journey Fields approach, we are showcasing farmers' experience as they work towards pigweed eradication on their operation. We had a typical year when we applied our residuals we had rain to activate them we would like to see a week of typical august weather maybe get us a good rain seven to ten days from now would be ideal for the cotton be ideal for the soybeans and it help this corn get ready to harvest when we finish harvesting corn we give them a good thorough cleaning if they just got one or two pig weed, I think they've done a pretty good job. Visit OperationWeedEradication.com to learn more. Always read and follow label directions.